You're listening to WJMSRadio.com, where radio is reimagined. The Fired Up Show starts right now. Welcome, welcome, welcome. Welcome to Fired Up, right here on WJMSRadio.com. This is Steve. I host the show each week, and we get into what makes the political system here in the United States tick. And as always, I welcome all of you to the show this week. I appreciate you joining me week over week. So let's get right into it, shall we? Uh, Before we start off and do our numbers on the coronavirus, as we always do, a couple of uh, housekeeping things I want to uh, make sure that I address. Number one, welcome to February. And of course, February here in the U.S. is Black History Month. So we're going to feature some content uh, for the month uh, each week uh, relating to economic and political and social justice elements uh, as applied through black history. The second is uh, really kind of a somber note, and we note with sadness uh, the passing of the award-winning actress uh, Cecily Tyson, who passed away last Thursday at the age of 96. Uh, We extend our uh, thoughts and prayers and blessings to her family and her children. And we are all uh, somewhat diminished uh, with her light leaving the universe. I just wanted to make sure to get that out up front and then I dedicate this show to her memory. So, let's get right into our content for this week. Uh, Let's start it off as we always do with our update on the coronavirus. Uh, We are currently sitting here in the U.S. at 26.1 million cases having been reported, and more than 441,000 people uh, have died from the COVID disease. Uh, We note that uh, in terms of the vaccine, that 49.9 million doses of the coronavirus vaccine uh, have been distributed and 31.1 million uh, injections have been delivered to date. Uh, We also note that a new entrant on the scene is a vaccine that's coming in from Johnson & Johnson. And unlike the Moderna and Pfizer vaccines, Uh, The Johnson & Johnson uh, vaccine is a single-dose vaccine, which means you don't have to wait three weeks to get your second dose. Now, it is uh, being reported that the efficacy of the vaccine is slightly less than the Pfizer and Moderna versions at about 67%. Uh, compared with 94% for the other two vaccines. However, it you know is still another tool in the arsenal in our battle against the COVID pandemic. We uh, also need to note that the Biden administration has put out some even more uh, information on its plans to to utilize the vaccines to help get the pandemic more under control. Uh, As you know, uh, President Biden set out an initial goal of having 100 million doses uh, injected in arms uh, within the first 100 days of his administration. And it should be noted that uh, several days now, at least 
four or five days in the last uh, 10 days, the inoculations in the U.S. have exceeded the 1 million per day goal uh, that was set in order to meet that objective. And, you know, it looks like uh, we're moving toward a steady state of somewhere between 1 million and uh, one and a half or maybe even 2 million doses a day being administered. Uh, that's still not you know, enough according to what doctors and scientists are saying. They really would like us to be getting up close to 3 million doses a day, which would put us you know, back on track and, and on the way toward getting you know, the majority of people here in the United States vaccinated uh, by the end of the summer uh, this year. So we'll see. We'll keep you posted and we'll keep updating on any new developments that come out. Uh, there are still some other vaccines that are going through their clinical trial stages. And as soon as those uh, come to uh, some notification, we will pass that information along. Right now, let's um, turn the page and let's get into our political games for this first week of February 2021. So President Trump has been out of office now for just a little bit less than two weeks, but uh, his impacts are definitely still being felt uh, in our country, and they probably will be for quite some time to come. Uh, most notably, uh, there are a, a few uh, Congress people and senators uh, who are still espousing the, uh, quote, big lie, close quote, that the election was stolen uh, by the Democrats, even though you know no evidence has been found, no court cases that were brought in protest or in, in fighting the decision uh, have achieved any level of success. And you know the, the fact still remains that President Biden uh, decisively won the popular vote and the electoral college vote. Uh, to take over as president of the United States. Uh, that hasn't stopped several uh, Congress people uh, up to and including the leader, uh, the minority leader of the House of Representatives, Kevin McCarthy, uh, from traveling down to Florida this past week to meet with Donald Trump and, you know, as, as some people are saying, and, and I kind of agree with kiss the ring or, or kiss the whatever, uh, of the former president, um, you know, and again, it's it's the games that are being played, and we're going to talk in this first segment about you know some of the 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 larger games that we're seeing developed. But you know, the point being is that the Republicans are very clearly playing a long game in trying to keep uh, the former president uh, happy, and through him to keep access to his base within the Republican Party. Uh, and so what you're seeing is uh, a lack of you know, outright criticism of the president beyond some very mild words uh, issued uh, in, in response to the insurrection in the Capitol uh, back on January 6th. Uh, there, there really hasn't been any uh, cohesive, uh, intense criticism of things that the former administration has done by the Republican Party uh, of today, of right now, and going forward. Uh, 
and that's that's to be expected. You know, the the current state of Republican politics in this country is one of appeasing the base and keeping a hold of all of those uh, Trump loyal supporters out there as, you know, various political figures buy and 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 jostle for position uh, for perhaps a future presidential run in 2024 or a uh, Congress or Senate run coming up in the midterms in 2022. So we can expect to see, you know, still more uh, Trump loyal elected officials uh, at the federal and the state level uh, praising or not actively criticizing or in some way looking to retain favor with the former president uh, and his base uh, to further their own political goals. And, you know, it, it just goes to show that the American political system is, is not based on a, a cohesive strategy of, you know, party planning and party execution. It's based on who do you like most? You know, who, who does the base like the most? Who does Donald Trump favor the most? And, you know, until we can find a way to, to reduce that influence and perhaps move back to a, a representative democracy where the, the needs of the people are, you know, a first priority over the needs of you know, the, the MAGA crowd, the, the Trump base uh, to retain your elected office, uh, you know, we are, we are still going to face these kinds of problems. Um, in, in reality, you know, it, it shouldn't be that a politician's first objective is to immediately begin working on how to get reelected. Their first objective should be on what do they need to do in order to answer the needs of their constituents specifically and the American population generally. So in, in light of that, uh, and in fact of you know, the impending impeachment trial of the former president, uh, a couple of things that we've noted, uh, in fact, you know, breaking news over the course of just this past weekend was that all five of uh, President Trump's lawyers who were slated to represent him in the trial have uh, stepped down, stepped away, and are not going to represent him, leading him to have to pick uh, another group of lawyers to represent him in the trial, which is slated to start in a week, by the way. Uh, but as we, we talk about the trial, one of the things that I think you will see, and there's starting to be rumblings of it, there were a few brief rumblings, uh, but that will probably become a much louder chorus the closer and closer we get to the trial, is uh, who should and who will sit as the presiding officer. Now, there, there were arguments made and arguments still being made that, number one, uh, impeaching Donald Trump is unconstitutional, uh, because he's no longer in office, and that is just factually not true. There is ample precedent precedent for impeachments uh, of you know uh, op officers, elected officials who uh, were no longer in office, and second, that the Chief Justice of the Supreme Court uh, 
should preside over the proceedings. Well, Article 1, Section 3, Part 6 of the Constitution specifically speaks to that. And I, I quote that section. It says, The Senate shall have the sole power to try all impeachments. When sitting for that purpose, they shall be on oath or affirmation. When the President of the United States is tried, the Chief Justice shall preside. And no person shall be convicted without the concurrence of two-thirds of the members present. Now, the important sentence there is, when the President of the United States is tried. The intention of that was for the sitting president, uh, if he or she is being impeached, then that would mandate the Chief Justice of the Supreme Court presiding over the trial. Donald Trump is not the president. He is a president, specifically a former president. Therefore, another officer will be placed to preside over the impeachment trial. And the person who has been uh, determined to sit in that position will be uh, the president pro tempore of the Senate, uh, Senator Leahy. So Senator Leahy will be the presiding officer over the impeachment. Uh, and the trial is slated to begin on February 9th. So we shall see what becomes of that. Uh, and, and again, you know, the, the arguments that people are making really, you know, make you wonder if our elected officials or, or certain of our elected officials have actually read the Constitution in any great detail. I mean, I'm, I'm a lowly guy doing a podcast and I've read it now, uh, you know, probably a dozen times in the last year. Uh, just so that I'm aware of what the laws state, what the, the applicable uh, elements of the Constitution are to the political processes that I talk about. So, you know, I, I would expect that the Republicans are going to continue to cry foul that the Chief Justice uh, is not presiding over that trial. They are going to try and make various arguments all of them really are, are moot because the Constitution specifically sets the terms for when the Chief Justice will preside. So that's the latest game that the Republicans are playing. Um, another one that has come to the fore and there's been a lot of debate on is as the, you know, uh, sharing of power as the power structure in the new Senate uh, is working itself out. There have been a lot of arguments about what should happen to the filibuster. Now, for those that don't know, the filibuster is a rule under the Senate's operating rules. Uh, number one, uh, it is not in the Constitution. It is not in federal law anywhere. It is merely a parliamentary process adopted by the Senate some 140 years ago uh, as a way of you know, exercising a limit on the amount of debate that can be held. In particular, it was brought about uh, as a way to, to head off uh, legislation regarding slavery uh, you know, in, in the run-up to the Civil War and, and in the period after that. Uh, but of recent 
terms, it's been used as a way to delay the process of voting on a bill by uh, holding the floor, uh, as it's called, and delaying you know any movement forward on the the process of getting the legislative agenda done. Now, in the past, uh, and and when I say in the past, I mean going back to you know uh, thirty years or so. Uh, what that involved was that a senator would go to the floor as as part of debate on a bill and would begin to speak and not relinquish the floor to uh, to anyone of the opposition uh, until either they could no longer speak or they could no longer be heard uh, or they you know frankly just passed out from exhaustion uh, the longest filibuster on record is one that lasted uh, some uh, individual filibuster was one that lasted nearly 24 hours, and that was by um, Senator Strom Thurmond uh, about uh, 20 years ago. And the longest filibuster on record is uh, more than 75 hours, and that was accomplished by a tag team of uh, senators who would, you know, relinquish to a colleague for a, a period of time to speak uh, and then reclaiming their uh, ownership of the floor, uh, which was within the rules. Um, as a result of that, the business of the Senate would come to a complete halt. Well, that process was modified uh, in the 1970s, I believe, so that a filibuster now uh, need only be done as a motion, and it basically tables whatever the bill that was under discussion was, but it allows the Senate to move forward with other business. Uh, the, the problem with that is that you know, there is no time limit on how long that filibuster will hold. Any filibuster will hold until the majority party can muster 60 votes in order to, uh, to end the filibuster, and that's called uh, to invoke cloture. You'll hear that term spoken when, when you hear filibuster. And that's just the process of voting to end discussion or end the filibuster and move the issue forward to a vote. So, you know, what we're seeing is Mitch McConnell for really some very interesting and, and kind of, you know, behind-the-scenes reasons that were not fully uh, read into has indicated that he is willing to let the filibuster rules be changed uh, with the Democrats in order or in the order of setting up control of the Senate. Uh, and, you know, it, this is from someone who has used the filibuster uh, relentlessly uh, in you know, his pursuit of obstructing uh, legislation in the former Obama administration uh, and by others you know, in, in pursuit of holding an agenda. Uh, so his, his move at this point to you know, basically throw in some form of the towel on the filibuster must raise the questions of what's the ulterior motive. 
Remember, Republicans are known for playing, you know, three-dimensional chess. Unfortunately, their Democratic opponents seem most times to be playing, you know, checkers. Uh, definitely, there is something else afoot. We should keep our eye out for it. There is something that the Republicans are going to seek or request or demand in order to move forward with any vote to eliminate the filibuster and basically move all uh, legislations, appointments, and all of that to a simple majority. That is 51 senators voting in favor. So we will see what happens with that. But I, I find it interesting that after so long of using this tool, uh, you know, relentlessly in their pursuit of their agenda, that the Republicans would be willing to just really kind of let it go for a very, very small or, you know, no price at all. That just does not seem to make sense to me. Uh, but, you know, it, it is what it is, uh, and we will see what becomes of it. But again, you know, it's just a reminder that, you know, the Republicans play the, the game of politics uh, looking for long-term objectives. Uh, and frankly, if the Democrats want to have a, a better chance, A, at governing, and B, at you know, winning elections and so forth in order to continue governing, they're going to have to change the way they play the game. They're going to have to start playing hardball. They're going to have to you know, not be so afraid of the the reactions and and of of the you know uh, minority parties within their 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 caucus and really set a party strategy for what they want to accomplish and determine that they are going to to do whatever it takes in order to move that agenda forward this, frankly, is one of, the, one of the shortcomings of the Obama administration in that when, in the first two years of the Obama presidency, they had, you know, the majority in the House and the majority in the Senate, and they were hesitant to exercise that majority. And their majority was actually larger than the current majorities uh, that the, the Democrats have now. And as a result, the appearance was that, you know, they were, you know, ineffective at leadership and they paid a price for it in the midterms. And the Republicans ended up gaining control of the Senate and they held it all the way up until November uh, 3rd, 2020. So, you know, it, it will be interesting to see what transpires out of this filibuster negotiation. It will be interesting to see if the Democrats under the Biden administration and Biden-Harris leadership are really going to, you know, step up and be willing to maybe take a bloody nose down the road in order to achieve their legislative agenda now and improve things for the American people. And one thing you got got to realize, and, and we'll, we'll, we'll break the topic here, is you know, the best way to win over an enemy is to win with uh, successes, to achieve the accomplishments you set out to achieve. You know, right now we, we've got a you know, politically divided country, 
But if the Biden administration can make su substantial, excuse me, and significant improvements in some of the key areas that are the concern to the American people, they will you know, win more of the hearts and souls of those people that voted against them. You know, so we'll take our break here. And when we come back on the other side, we're going to talk a little bit about the filibuster, get into a little of you know, what it is in, in a little more detail, and really do we need it, as well as some other uh, news that's going on. So you're listening to Fired Up right here on WJMS. We'll be right back after the short break. I'm Kareem Abdul-Jabbar. Because of the COVID-19 virus, we have had to learn new ways to be together. We've had to find new ways to communicate. We have to find new ways to play. And we have to find new ways to keep each other safe. For myself and my family, I'm going to take the COVID-19 vaccine. To learn more about the vaccine, go to cdc.gov. Let's do this together. And welcome back to Fired Up right here on WJMSRadio.com. All right, we were talking before the break about the filibuster and just wanted to kind of wrap that up uh, with a bow and just, you know, again, the filibuster, and you may hear someone say to you that it's a law. No, it's a rule. It's part of the package of rules that the Senate operates under. In fact, the Senate and the House both have filibuster rules uh, in their in their uh, rule books. Uh, and it is something that can be changed by a majority vote of the Senate and, in fact, has been changed uh, several times in the 140 years of its existence in this country. So it, it's not a law. It's a rule, and it is subject to change at the whim of the majority party uh, governing at the time. And also, as we were saying, if you know uh, McConnell and the Republicans are seriously willing to give up uh, the filibuster, which is a tool of the minority party uh, in order to uh, exercise some level of influence or control over the legislative agenda, uh, the question has to be raised, what are they likely going to you know, get in return? Well, one thought based on discussions that are going on is there's a great deal of concern in the Republican Party about uh, some of the committees that are reforming under the new Senate under Democratic control. And in particular, the finance, uh, the finance committee is going to be under the chairmanship of Senator Bernie Sanders of Vermont. Uh, something that uh, sends chills down the spines of most Republicans. Uh, and they're very much concerned about one particular element uh, of the, the power that the Finance Committee has. It has what is known as a reconciliation methodology, and that is they can propose legislation that as long as it has a relationship to the federal budget, which is what is under their, uh, their control, uh, can be passed by the Senate on a simple majority vote. 
And Senator Sanders is on the record as saying he intends to use the reconciliation power uh, to get uh, several elements of the Biden agenda through the Senate, even if the Republicans uh, oppose it and would would rather it have to go to a 60 vote uh, majority uh, simply because the committee can vote to place the the item of legislation uh, on the the agenda and it only needs a 51 vote approval in order to make it to the floor and it would only need 51 votes to be passed in the Senate. So the Republicans could essentially be iced out of those uh, those pieces of legislation. So their bargaining chip may be some form of agreement, understanding, or contract with the Finance Committee that says they will not bring forward any such legislation that if, if it were brought through normal process would require 60 votes, but because it's coming out of the Finance Committee would only require 51. We don't know. We will wait to see what happens. Stay tuned. All right, um, let's move to some other things that also you know, fall into the game segment, although they are not uh, inherently political. Um, one is all of the recent news going on about the uh, GameStop, Robinhood, uh, subreddits, uh, you know, all of that mess with the GameStop, uh, stock being frozen in for trading for individuals, but yet allowed to still be traded by hedge funds. And, you know, that created a furor because basically it was the haves still being able to play the game, but those who were not, uh, you know, as, as the definition calls for, quote, qualified investors, close quote, meaning people of high net worth, uh, high uh, wealth uh, could continue. So, you know, the, this has been all over the news. I, I won't get into the deep details on it, but to, to basically synopsize it greatly, GameStop, GameStop's stock was uh, really uh, falling. It, it had fallen off of its, its peaks and, you know, really was uh, sort of, you know, moving its way down to penny stock status when, you know, certain investors in the hedge fund sector uh, decided that they were going to do what is called short sell the stock, where you borrow shares of the stock, sell them at a higher price. And when the stock, um, you know, settles at a lower price, you then buy them at that price and you make the difference. It's kind of the opposite of normal, where you buy a stock low and sell it high. Here, you borrow a stock at a low, at a high value and sell it when that value um, comes down to the lower and you essentially make the difference. You earn the difference in your portfolios. Well, a group of you know, private investors, individuals, uh, found out and banded together and through uh, the Robinhood platform, they also decided to buy substantial shares uh, in short sale 
uh, format. And basically, because they were buying a substantial number of shares, the share price actually went up, and which is what happens in the stock market when you know shares uh, are, are sold. You know, a large number of shares of a stock are sold. It typically goes higher and higher. So what happened was the hedge fund uh, managers were uh, bleeding money by the millions, and uh, the um, the SEC Securities and Exchange Commission uh, shut down the the trading on GameStop stock along with uh, several others. I think it was AMC and, and at least one other I can't think of right now. Uh, basically, because uh, the big boys were losing their shirt uh, on the stock. And this has created a furor. This has created lawsuits against Robinhood, against the platform uh, that uh, was, was uh, handling the stock transactions. Uh, all of this uh, because the big investors uh, got really upset that they were getting beaten at their own game by this, this group of individuals banded together. And as a result of that, there's been uh, some political discussion about uh, Congress getting into being involved and looking at the SEC and looking at the, the hedge funds and this um, short selling versus long selling process uh, and disclosures and all of that. So it, it has blown up into a very big issue. Uh, meanwhile, side note, GameStop's stock has continued to rise. Um, but, you know, there are calls coming in to change some of the laws that govern hedge funds uh, and, and also, uh, you know, in investors' uh, operations in the short, short versus long sale market within the stock markets. So uh, the, the game seems to be that as long as the wealthy players are, you know, making money hand over fist, uh, you know, never mind the fact that, you know, they are essentially kind of manipulating the system um, by using the short sell strategy, uh, but it's okay. But when, you know, you and me and, and Joe or Jane common person uh, band together to put together enough money to you know meet the qualification threshold, which is two hundred thousand dollars, by the way. Uh, then it becomes a problem, um, and and that's you know that's typical of the wealth divide that we see in this country, and some of the root causes of that divide in that it's an uneven playing field. Uh, it, it's you know one set of rules for the, the super rich and the well-heeled and another set of rules for the everyday people uh, that works to prevent them from gaining you know, significant wealth or establishing you know, significant long-term uh, you know, economic performance. And you know, it, it is just part and parcel of you know, financial news that's been coming out of late. I saw some articles uh, that came out of Business Insider uh, around the 26th and 27th of January. And one article reported 
that uh, some of the most super rich individuals in this country uh, made a, an, an estimated $397 billion during the pandemic through investments in you know, pandemic and related stocks. Um, and at, at the same time, uh, ordinary working people lost $387 billion of real income over that same period. So you could kind of, you know, connect those two dots together and say that the working people were forced to transfer 300 and whatever billion dollars of their money to the wealthiest people in the country, you know, through the, the acquisition of stock and so forth. Uh, even, even though, you know, in truth, uh, you know, it, it's, it's an entirely tied to uh, downturns in the job market and, you know, all of the things related, you know, related to the COVID virus uh, and its effects uh, in, in our country over the last year. So just something else to keep an eye on and to be aware of. Uh, speaking of uh, economics and uh, politics of economics, uh, President Biden has put out some additional details on his $1.9 trillion COVID relief package. And let me quickly run down the list of, of what's expected or what he's asking for. Uh, economic impact payments, $1,400 per person for a total of $2,000 when you account for the uh, bill passed in December. $425 billion for that. Unemployment insurance, $400 monthly supplemental through September of 2021. That's going to be $290 billion. A child tax credit increase uh, made fully refundable. Uh, that's $149 billion. Uh, benefits for paid leave, $84 billion. Health care, COBRA, and Affordable Care Act subsidies, $57 billion. Child care, uh, expenses, $38 billion. Assistance for rent, utilities, and to combat homelessness, $35 billion. Uh, benefits uh, for veterans' health, $20 billion. Uh, expansion and strengthening of the nutrition or SNAP program, $12 billion. Uh, money for mental health care and treatment, $4 billion. Uh, and, you know, other relief uh, first responders and aid to state and local governments, that's $350 billion. K-12 schools and higher education supports, $170 billion. Direct COVID pandemic response, uh, testing, supplies, and workforce, that's $160 billion. Small business grants, uh, basically the EIDL and PPP program, $50 billion. Transportation subsidies, including airlines and cruise industry, that's $20 billion. Tribal governments uh, for Native Americans in this country would be $20 billion. $7 billion will go to cybersecurity. And that uh, totals up to $1.891 I'm sorry, trillion dollars uh, that the Biden uh, plan is calling for. Now, you know, it will remain to be seen how much of that actually makes it across the finish line. But uh, that's the proposal that the Biden administration is putting forward. And, you know, perhaps negotiations on that will be part of that uh, aforementioned filibuster discussion. We don't know. We'll keep watching and we'll let you know what we find out. 
you know, you, you get the sense of, you know, what's going on in terms of the political games that are being played in this country. And, you know, we've talked about this um, countless times here on the Fire It Up show. It, it, it's one of the main themes of the show. Uh, one of the things that we see happening uh, in the, the post-Trump era is that now uh, Republicans, in, instead of you know, it's supporting Donald Trump through accusations of Democrats stealing the vote and all of that. Now what you're going to see is more and more the Republicans are going to talk budget. They are going to talk deficits. Uh, they are going to, you know, continually talk about how we're mortgaging our children's future uh, for all of these relief packages. Never mind the fact that Nobody was talking about those things when they passed a $1.7 trillion tax cut uh, in 2017. Uh, one, by the way, that has uh, a sunset clause, which is going to gradually raise the lower end of those tax cuts back up to where they were by 2026. Uh, they've never talked about that part. Um, so, you know, Always be on the watch for the games that are being played. And when you find one, make sure that you're talking to your elected officials about it, whether it's federal or state or local. You know, uh, we are the guardians of the gate. We need to make sure they understand that we are watching them and that we are not uh, going to accept uh, the, the okie doke. Okay. So let's change gears a little bit. Uh, as, as I said at the top of the show, we are in now, as of today, February 1st, uh, we are in Black History Month. And, you know, it, it's especially significant, uh, you know, a, as we move into the new Biden administration and as we start to see some of the, the, the changes and restorations that are being proposed uh, by the Biden administration, um, on you know the the treatment on the addressing of conditions that are faced by people of color in this country, as well as the poor and disenfranchised uh, people of the United States. Um, something I wanted to note that I, I noted with uh, with some level of of joy, frankly, is that. Uh, late last week, it was announced that the Black Lives Matter movement has been nominated for the Nobel Peace Prize. And uh, the articles came out uh, from the Norwegian media. And it says, and I quote, the Black Lives Matter movement has been nominated for the 2021 Nobel Peace Prize for the way, for the way its call for systemic change has spread around the world. In its nomination papers, the, the Norwegian Minister of Parliament, uh, Petter Eide, I believe is how you pronounce his name, said the movement had forced countries outside the U.S. to grapple with racism within their own societies. Uh, and a quote from him said, I find that one of the key challenges we have seen in America, but also in Europe and Asia, is the kind of increasing conflict based on inequality. Black Lives Matter has become a very important worldwide movement to fight racial injustice. Um, they have had a tremendous achievement in raising global awareness and consciousness about racial injustice. So, 
you know, the, the Black Lives Matter movement as a whole is receiving the recognition of a nomination for the Nobel Peace Prize. And of course, you know, it, it wouldn't be, you know, 21st century America if that didn't generate some backlash. So in, in a, uh, an article that came out the next day after the announcement in Business Insider of the nomination, uh, we saw the article, Black Lives, Black Lives Matter Movement Nobel Peace Prize nomination mocked on Twitter. The announcement uh, was not supported by some of the folks on Twitter who mocked the nomination due to how to some of the peaceful BLM protests turned violent. Uh, one was quoted, this is beyond parody, a Nobel Peace Prize for the movement that has contributed to defunding the police uh, led leading to an unprecedented murder spike in 2020, riots causing two billion plus in damages and helping to decrease race relations, one person wrote. And uh, fact checking that, uh, that's not totally true. Uh, another person stated, at this rate, any of us can get a Nobel Peace Prize since they are handing them out like candy. So, you know, in, in the category of no good deed goes unpunished, um, you know, Black Lives Matter gets a, a deserved nomination for a Nobel Peace Prize uh, that immediately uh, generates, you know, uh, criticism and mocking and, and so forth in social media just another day. But nonetheless, you know, congratulations to Black Lives Matter. Uh, we appreciate what you are doing and we think it's well deserved. And finally, as I said, this is, you know, Black History Month. And I want to close out with a, a short piece of poetry by a, a poet from New Jersey from, you know, years back. Um, likely you younger folk do not know this person, you haven't heard of him, but I encourage you to look him up and, you know, read, you know, his body of work. His name is Amiri Baraka, B-A-R-A-K-A. -A. He is a poet, a writer, a teacher, and a political activist. Uh, he, uh, was very prominent in New Jersey, New York, metropolitan area politics, economic and social justice matters in the, the 60s, 70s and 80s. And, you know, he was someone who was very outspoken in the day talking about the economic and social problems that uh, people of color uh, faced then. And, and again, we're talking about, you know, essentially the 60s and 70s uh, that are still impacting our communities today. So as we're going to do this uh, throughout Black History Month, we're going to feature uh, people from black history that you've likely not heard of, but yet who, who were the, um, I won't say unrecognized, but not the marquee names that we always talk about during Black History Month. Yes, we will have some comments on, you know, Martin Luther King and Malcolm X and, you know, and so forth. But we're going to hear from some of the other soldiers that were out there, some of the people that the history books don't talk about. 
So, you know, we're, we're going to give you a little broader, a little deeper, a little wider uh, look at, you know, black history in the United States uh, as we go through the month of February. So the, to give you some context, the poem is called uh, Re Revelations, and it is part of a memorial speech that Amiri Baraka gave for a gentleman named Gus Henningberg, who was an economic and social justice leader in the New York, New Jersey metropolitan area uh, in, in the 50s and 60s and 70s. Uh, and this was a memorial service that was being held for him uh, a year after his passing in uh, 2013. And uh, again, the, the piece is short. It's called Revelations, and it is being delivered by Amiri Baraka. With that, we will close out the show. And uh, as always, please stay safe. Take care. Wear your mask, wash your hands, don't touch your eyes or face, socially distance, keep yourself protected, protect your family, your community, and your country. This is Steve. You've been listening to Fired Up. It's my pleasure each week to talk to you, and I look forward to speaking to you all again in seven days. Here is Amiri Baraka. I got one more poem to read, but so long, Gus, you were a great person, a good person, in your own sweet way. This is a poem that I think captures what we thought, even from our diverse political positions. It's called Revelations. The worst criminals are completely legal. They have laws saying they can steal. The worst murderers are completely legal. They have laws saying it's perfectly cool for them to kill. Why is this? Because this is hell. Haven't you guessed? The real question is not how to keep from going to hell. The real question is how to get out. Started yesterday, and we're all.